Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz guitar virtuoso Stan Lee Jordan. His life and music began as a child with the piano and would eventually migrate to the guitar. His unique approach to playing the instrument was inspired by the work he put in on the keys. Stanley is a very intelligent and gifted musician that has brought the world an incredible amount of good work. He has been to over 65 countries on the Tonight shows with both Carson and Jimmy Fallon and made a cameo on the big screen in the 80s with the Bruce Willis film Blind Date. He just released a 2015 album with his friend Kevin Eubanks called Duets and he's excited for a new album on the horizon for 2016. Over the course of our conversation he spoke eloquently and freely about a very cool life he's lived and dreams realized. Please dig this interview my friends. Stanley, thank you for taking a little time to talk with me today. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm happy to. So let's go ahead and dive in here, and let's get an idea of what has been going on with you lately. Uh, the really good news, the really amazing news, is I'm just finishing my album. We are in the mastering process, so I actually have a CD that I'm listening to and making little tweaks in. And I'm, I'm just loving this music so much. I can't wait to get it out there. It looks like we're probably going to see a September release. Seemed like a long time, but the label needs like at least six months to really set it up. So I know they want to do a good job. Well, let's talk about your latest album in 2015, Duets with Kevin Eubanks. Talk to me a little bit about how that project came about. I've known Kevin for a long time. We came up in the same scene together in New York, and he was one of my favorite musicians. And I, I, I thought that we had a lot in common because we had a kind of a unique approach to the guitar and we were kind of independent thinkers about our music and we never actually really played so much together but i used to watch some of the shows that he would do in new york around 2010 we um were in this festival and i i saw him do an interview where he talked about a lot of themes that were really important to me and i realized not just musically but personally i really like this guy and i like how he thinks and so we started talking and we said, hey, we should do something together. So we ended up doing a series of concerts. We started just doing like skull arrangements right off the top of our head. I mean, we would improvise the whole show sometimes from beginning to end, just make everything up on the spot. And it just seemed like there was just this amazing chemistry because I always felt like I knew where he was going and I could just do whatever I wanted to do. And he would be right there complimenting it. And so it gave me a lot of that same freedom that I get with my solo show, but yet I'm actually playing with someone else, you know? Yeah. So that's when we thought we should record this. This is something really special. So when we did the album, we actually have some of those improv arrangements. Just right off the top of our head. <laughs> Let me kind of get back to the beginnings of your life in Chicago. What was it about your childhood that gave you this love and appreciation for not only music, but for jazz. We moved away from Chicago when I was only one, so I don't have any real memories of actually living there, but I have a lot of relatives there, and we visited many times for vacations. And I remember my aunt, my, my father's sister, was working at a radio station in Chicago, WLS. It was kind of a rock-pop station, and I got to go there and see how they work and see them spinning the music and stuff, and that was really exciting. 
I thought, you know, maybe one of these days I'm going to have music that that's going to be playing on the radio, you know. I was already playing by then. That was when I was about 10 or 11. Really, my beginnings go back before that because we had a piano in the house, and when I was around three or so, my sister tells me, at least, that I was playing around with the piano and coming up with stuff. I I remember before I took lessons, I used to just sit at the piano and try stuff. And I think that it's good for young children to have the experience of using the music as a creative outlet and not just learning rote music. You know, that can come later. I mean, I started taking lessons when I was seven, but by then I already had a relationship with the instrument, you know. And it was actually my mother's idea to get me started taking lessons. She was an amateur pianist, and she saw how much I loved it, so she got me going. Talk to me. So when you were a child, was it music always that you wanted to be involved with, or were there other dreams that you had for your life? I had a lot of other interests. It wasn't until I was maybe around 13 or so that I realized that the music was was number one. I was very much of a kind of explorer, experimenter, sort of a tinkerer. You know, um, we grew up in the area they call Silicon Valley, and my dad was... um, a um, manager and exec in the high-tech industry, so I had a lot of access to that world. And a lot of my friends were getting into technology and stuff. So I, at one point, wanted to be uh, some kind of a electronics engineer or some kind of a person in tech. I also was very much into science fiction. Well, fiction in general, but especially science fiction, and I used to write these long stories and... And it, if you had asked me at the age of 10, I would tell you that I wanted to be an author when I yeah. grew up. I remember when I was 13, I did this thought experiment. Like, if my life depended on it, if I had to decide right now, what am I going to do? Am I going to go into the more the technical side or the musical side? I decided that it would be the music because music has this immediate way of changing the world in a positive way. You know, you can play something and someone can feel it and maybe have a different perspective and maybe even their life could could change. Whereas if you go more on the technology side, you can do something that can have some impact down the road, but the music is so much more immediate. Because I remembered back to when I was 10 and I did my first recital. And this was when, this was before I started playing guitar, I was still a pianist. And it was all the students of, of my teacher and I played a piece that I had written, and I remember the look on people's faces after I performed. They had this sort of dreamy look, like like it wasn't the same thing like, oh, that was nice, Johnny, nice performance. You know, it wasn't that they were congratulating me, per se. It's that, that I could see that they were really touched by the music. And that really, that was a, a really important moment for me, realizing that through playing music, I could actually reach someone on such a deep level. Well, you started on the piano, migrated to the guitar. What was it about the guitar that lured you in? I was already interested in guitar because a lot of the music I was moving toward was very guitar-oriented. Because I started out when I was playing piano, I was composing in a sort of a late romantic style. Most of my music was sort of classical music and sort of early modern music. I loved Prokofiev. And, um, but then I started to get more and more interested in rock and roll, R&B, blues. I remember when um, 
B.B. King, The Thrill Is Gone, came out, and a lot of people really discovered blues for the first time with that song. And so, you know, I, I wanted to play guitar. I didn't want to really want to quit piano, but but I started to have this desire to, to take up the guitar. And then we went through some difficult times with our family, and suddenly there was no piano in the house. And I was able to persuade my folks to get me a guitar, less expensive, <laughs> And that's when I started playing. And I, I've just really just loved it ever since. It's, it instantly became my instrument. But then some years later, I started playing piano again at my school. And I realized that I still missed some of the pianistic things that you couldn't do on a guitar. And that's what led me to experiment with different approaches to the guitar. So the technique that I'm calling the touch technique really kind of came from that piano background and wanting to adapt the guitar to, to play more pianistic-type music. So that's how your technique ultimately, because it's a beautiful technique, that's how it kind of came about was because of your work on the keys. Yes, and, and because I was playing piano already, I had some concept of the coordination between the two hands, and I had some skill with that, so... It was really more a question of adapting it to the layout of the, the guitar neck. And also, physically, there were some challenges. You know, if, if, it, if it were an easy technique, then a lot more people would have been doing it. So I, I had to put on my experimenter, my, my tech hat, too, and look at the guitar a little differently and figure out, what do I have to do here to figure out how to, how to accomplish this? I knew in my head what I wanted to do. But it took a while physically to figure out how to actually make it happen. Let me ask you this. When you were growing up, was there an album in particular that moved you that just kind of parted the curtains for you? Oh, that's a great question. Man, I can think of maybe a few that really just made a huge difference for me. I can tell you, um, I would say um, John McLaughlin's Mahavishnu Orchestra, Inner Mounting Flame. I remember when I first heard that music, it was just unbelievable. It was just blowing my mind. How I've never, I'd never heard anything like that. So that was a big one. Another one was the best of Herbie Hancock on Blue Note. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was really into jazz at that point, but I wasn't really playing jazz yet. This was before I started um, playing guitar. I started getting into jazz. And the thing that I loved about jazz was that it combined my favorite elements from the classical side and from the rock and blues side because it had that that raw power like like rock music and that sort of visceral sensation of the, the um, music how the music hits you and at the same time it had that the the sophistication the richness of structure like the classical side so I was already kind of get going in that direction. And then, but it wasn't until after I started playing guitar that I really started really trying to play jazz. And so it was after that that I got the Herbie. You know, I had heard him perform before, but but it was after that that I got the best of of Herbie on Blue Note. Yeah, and a lot of that music was really challenging. Like when I first heard it, it was very complex, and it was almost like. Difficult. It was challenging to listen to. It was almost kind of difficult to listen to. But I knew that I was the one who had the problem. Like in other words, my 
I was, as a listener, there was something there that I wasn't quite getting. And and I knew that, that I needed to keep listening until I got it. And, and I did. And, it, and when I did get it, it was like a new world opening up for me. And I think this is an important point because I think a lot of times, you know, young people don't necessarily understand, like, the way that, that music is marketed. It's so consumer-driven, and so it's all based on pleasing the customer, which is understandable from a marketing side. But when we talk about aesthetics and the arts, the, the, the rules don't necessarily apply. You know, sometimes it's not necessarily about, okay, I paid my money, make me happy. Sometimes it's about there's great art out there, and I want to take that in, and I want the edification of that, and I realize I have to maybe do some work and do some growing in order to get there. Yeah, and I think that we in the industry, if we if we recognize that, we can maybe go about things a little differently to help young people to in, along in in that development. Well, and speaking of development in your life, you move on to get a BA from Princeton. What did that initial John into higher education teach you about being a musician? My years at Princeton were really an amazing time. Um, so so many doors opened up. One thing was that. As a composer, I really wanted to get out some of the music that I was hearing deep in my in my soul that I couldn't play on any instrument. I was hearing music that was sort of more orchestral in scope, but it wasn't conventional instruments. And I was a fan of some of the bands that used synthesizers like Pink Floyd and so forth, and I really loved uh, Switched on Bach and some of the classical you know, things where they use synthesizers. So I knew that there was, uh, electronically, there would be a way of getting at these sounds that I was imagining. And so I, I got interested in, in computer music, which was something that was new because this wasn't just an analog synthesizer that generates the, uh, the sound um, the old-fashioned way. This was actually using a computer to digitally um, create the sound based on mathematical formulas. And what I understood, and this is what the, the main thing that was so amazing with Princeton, what I understood is that any sound could be, could be created with a computer. For the first time in human history, we had an instrument that could create any possible sound. And Princeton was one of the only places you could go to actually do that. This was, this was brand new. I mean, Princeton was doing it. Stanford was doing it, um, USC, I think MIT. I mean, it's just a real handful of places. So this was really cutting-edge stuff for, for me personally and also to be kind of a part of the beginnings of a new movement in, in generating sound. So there was that. Then there was a whole other element that there were composers there who were really inspirational to me, like Milton Babbitt was... Uh, I would say one of our great American treasures that I think since he passed on just a few years ago, I think more and more people are starting to recognize his contribution. He was a composer who taught at Princeton and was also really advanced in, in his theories. And so studying with Milton was wonderful because it opened my my ears and and it really opened my mind to understanding musical structure on a deeper level. Well, and then you had, at the same time, some time you spent with Benny Carter and Dizzy Gillespie. That had to be a pretty momentous time for you. 
Yes, it was amazing because for one semester, Benny Carter taught at Princeton because they did a, a course. Uh, Morrow Berger, who was in the American Studies Department, was he, he was a big jazz fan. So he and Benny Carter co-taught um, this course that was a joint interdisciplinary course between American Studies and the Music Department. And so I took that course, and as a student in the course, I met Benny Carter, and they did this concert where um, Dizzy Gillespie came, and they, they played together. And so I sort of timidly asked, hey, uh, can I uh, sit in? <laughs> and uh, they, Benny had heard me because I had played in, in his office, and he said, sure, that would be wonderful. And it was a great experience for me because, you know, those guys are legends, and you know, you, it can be scary at first, like, what am I going to do playing with such great musicians? But the thing is, because they were so great, for, for me, it actually made it easy to play with them. Because yeah. their playing was really inspiring to me, and they brought things out in me that I didn't even know that I could do. And there was one point where I really kind of think that my presence was inspiring to them. Because they did their first set, and they brought me out for the second set for the beginning of the second set. And after that, from that song forward, there was like another feeling that, that happened in the music, and I really felt that, you know, they were actually inspired, you know, by my presence as well. I didn't think well, I could do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, th- let me ask you this. In 1985, you're signed by Blue Note. You release uh, Magic Touch, and that's, on you know, the top of the Billboard charts, you kind of go like a bottle rocket. What was that experience like to get signed onto a big label and to have things work out so well for you? It was a, a wonderful experience, and the way that it came about was like a, it was a dream come true that was so wonderful. You wouldn't even dare to dream it because it was just too amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, I had known Bruce Lundvall for a few years because he was he was the person that all the the musicians in New York just loved and said, this is the number one exec who really gets the music. And he had been president of Columbia for like five years. He was at Elektra. And so um, through Bill Milkowski, the music writer, I got to meet Bruce. And Bruce was very positive and very supportive, and, and he wanted to sign me. But at that time, I was... Um, going through some intense um, sort of personal things, wonderful things. Um, you know, my daughter was on the way, and, and I just really wasn't ready to, 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 to make any big moves in the music business. So when I, when I got to the point where I was ready, and I went to talk to Bruce, um, and, and I, I went there with my lawyer and said, okay, let's, let's move forward on, on this deal, he said, well, I got to tell you something. I don't work here anymore. Last night I got a call from the chairman of Capital Industries, and they want to revive Blue Note Records, and they want to start um, a major pop label with a big presence on the East Coast, and they want me to run both labels. So give me a chance to get that started, and then I'll get back to you because I want you to be the first artist I sign. So I mean, it's just the timing. You know, couldn't have been better. I mean, I know. That- I knew Bruce wanted to sign me, but the way that things worked out it was just in the stars, you know. And yeah. so when I signed with, with Bruce, I actually was, my record, Magic Touch, 
was the only record they had. So there was actually two record companies because there was Blue Note and also Manhattan EMI, and they had the, the two different promotion staffs from both labels working the same record. Yeah. So, you know, it was just one of those wonderful things. And I think that musically, I think it struck a chord at the time. I remember um, when the Cosby show was popular and it was like this really wholesome family show, you know, about an African-American family and so forth. And it was kind of a weird time. And, And so when that show became popular, I kind of felt like this is my time right now. Because yeah. I feel like there's a wholesome vibe in in the air, and I want to drop my music in to to this zeitgeist, and it just felt just perfect. Well, and speaking of being on a large platform, as a child of the '80s, I clearly remember the movie Blind Date, the cameo that you had in that oh, film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of doors did that kind of exposure open up for you at that time? It definitely opened up a lot of doors. You know, a lot more people in the film industry knew, came to know about my music. And I think, you know, people in general who don't necessarily follow jazz or follow even guitar necessarily, they they saw me and they saw that I was playing in an unusual way and they heard that there was something unusual in my sound. So even even if they saw that once and then totally forgot about it, then maybe years ago, I mean years later, they heard me or saw me and they realized, oh, that's the guy that I saw in that movie. So it kind of planted a seed. And even to this day, people will ask me, were you the guy in that movie? And I'll say, yes. Yeah, I knew it. I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, and you've had a lot of appearances on The Tonight Show and Letterman and and every late night show repeatedly throughout the years. Did those kind of do the same thing? Was it a continual seed that you put into the consciousness of people that were music fans? Yeah, I think so. You know, um, the way that I play, there's a there's a visual side to it because when I have the two hands on the neck playing independently, it, it looks different, and you hear unusual music coming out from it. And if I do that on a recording, people might think, oh, that's just you know two guitar players overdubbing in the studio or whatever. They don't realize that I'm doing all that live. And and so I think that because there's a kind of a visual side to at least the, the performance part of it, then I think it really lends itself to TV, movies, that kind of thing, video, you know, music videos. So that medium has worked really well for me. And then just recently I was on the, um, the new Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon and got a good response with that. I definitely want to sort of continue in the visual side of really the the, the performance. I mean, as long as it doesn't take away from the music, you're just adding another dimension to what people can receive. And going forward in the next year or two, one of the things I would like to do is I'd like to work with my own lighting designer and actually develop the visual side of my show. You know, usually from the jazz side, usually what we do is we just show up and they have a lighting designer there and, you know, they do a good job, but it's not the same as if you have someone who knows the music and who can kind of work on a closer level. So, you know, I definitely want to do that. And speaking of live shows, you've been all over the world and that has to be a thrilling experience to bring your music to so many different people and cultures. What does that feel like? 
it feels really good on different levels because on, on one level, I like the experience of going to different places and meeting the people and experiencing the culture, you know. Um, for example, um, not long ago, um, I played, I've been, over the last four or five years or so, I've been um, playing pretty frequently in Russia. And I just recently went to a, a region of Russia that I hadn't been to before. And um, this is the area where um, Genghis Khan settled. Yeah, and and so you can see there's there's like a there's like the Russian there's like an Asian influence, um, and you can kind of see it in the people, and and there's a lot of elements in the culture, you know. So I mean, just little things like that. I didn't expect to to to, to see that. Um, now, when I added it up, not long ago, I realized that I've played in over sixty five countries, and. I think at this point, because I've been to so many places, I think it has changed how I approach my music. And it's it's changed my relationship to the world. Like, if I hear about an event going on in the world, then I realize, wow, you know, I know people there. I wonder how this person is doing and how that person is doing. It's, it really changes things when you actually know people in these places. And I, and I feel that it's one of the great privileges of being able to travel and bring music is is that it helps with our cultural connections you know because we don't have to get involved in the economic issues and the political problems and everything there's a common humanity that we all can embrace and the arts circumvent a lot of the issues in the world and allow us to remember that we're all connected so yeah. I, I feel that it's important for artists to, to go internationally when when they can, and you, I think from coming from the United States, you'll see that that a lot of people in the world really c- continue to love American music, and and so there's there's something. It's one of our best exports. It's something that we have that the world really really appreciates. You have received a lot of awards over your lifetime, and my question is this. Was there one award that you got that surprised you? Not that it was the best or the most um, luminous of them all, but just one you were like, wow, that was cool. When I released my friend's album, that felt really good, you know. We were kind of hoping for a Grammy on that. When I make music, I try to, at least, well, let me put it this way. When I'm, when I'm doing something that I know is going out into the world, not just sort of playing for my own enjoyment, I do think about the impact that I that I hope it's going to have and I cuz I really do want my music to enrich people's lives. It's not just I mean I I believe in absolute music in the sense that I don't believe in compromising the art of the music. But at the same time I I do feel that that if the art is is pure and really has that power that art can have it can have a positive impact on on other people on society. So you know when I get recognized for that, it's like a, it's a it's a confirmation that um, the music has value beyond just the the aesthetic side of it. I want my music to do something good in the world, rather of you know beyond just hey that was well crafted. For someone that loves the craft as much as you do, tell me this: Why do you love jazz? Well, like I was saying before, I I really feel that jazz kind of is like the axis of the wheel because it pull, it pulls together all of my other favorite kinds of music. And 
jazz is very open-ended. So it's very compatible with pretty much anything. I mean, you know, think about, you know, John McLaughlin um, and the whole Shakti project with the Indian classical music. Then there's like the sort of the European ECM jazz that brings together sort of the third stream classical um, sensibility. And then you've got um, something like um, like uh, real deep pocket funky bluesy jazz, you know, and I mean, it's just then there's like jazz rock fusion and smooth jazz or whatever you want to call it based on the creative expression of the artist. Then it can it can go anywhere. There's an openness to it, and I think that it brings different elements because on on one hand, there's the the idea of of self expression and self actualization through self expression. So it's a part of our our growth. Then on another hand, there's a spiritual element to that because when you're creating in the moment, then it makes the moment so powerful that it pulls your awareness into a focus that the sages from the East have been telling us for thousands of years, that's where we should be. They say we should be in the here and now. We should be in the moment. Well, one of the ways that we experience that is by making that moment so wonderful through the arts. So so jazz, jazz creativity for me is there's no greater moment than that for me. Speaking of moments and being in the moment, what's the greatest thing about waking up every day for you? You know, it's it's kind of funny to, to, to think about that because I remember when I was in college and I was a real night owl because it was quiet at night and I could get all this great work done and stuff and with my music. But then I had I had trouble waking up in the morning. So I had this rule, like, don't schedule any classes before 10 a.m. That was like one of my rules. And then once I became a father, everything changed because I realized that I needed to get up early so that by the time my daughter woke up, I was ready and I was, you know, able to give her quality time because I'd gotten all my other stuff out of the way. And so I became a morning person as as a parent. And ever since then, I've just been really like this total morning person. I just, I just can't wait to get up, you know. Because man, all, you mean all I have to do is get out of bed, and I can do this, and I can do that, and that, you know. Yeah. And and so I, I think I must really love my life because because I just can't wait to get out of bed every morning. So everybody has a version of who you are. Your family does. Your friends do. Your fans. But tell me, who does Stanley Jordan think he is? You know, it's, it's funny that you mention this because we just had to talk about this because I did an interview for Jazz Times. And they uh, published it in their January, February um, cover story. And that's a lot of what the article was about, is getting down to the sort of deeper essence, you know, of, of, of self. And one of the things that I that I said is that I realize that I have a lot of different facets to who I am. And that rather than try to pin it down to one thing, what I really need to do is to recognize that all those facets are there and that I have to honor that and really nurture that. And so what, I, what I've been doing in my life and just in my world is, is just really kind of accepting my own inner diversity and and celebrating that, you know, and and so I mean, 
you know, I, I grew up at an intersection of many different cultures and, you know, um, at the, in the time and place where I started to really become aware of, of the world. Um, I was exposed to so many different kinds of music and different cultural influences and and I have a lot of sort of different strands to my ethnic background, obviously the African-American side and um, I've got a Native American heritage and um, my my uh, stepmother's Filipino, so there's like a whole Filipino branch of our extended family, you know, and all of these elements kind of wove in. And and so, you know, I can't tell you like I'm this or I'm that, you know. Let me put, put it this way, um, and not to get too too technical, but but there's a you know when we when we did the interview for Jazz Times, I brought up something that I think is kind of relevant. Um, in 1930, this uh, mathematician named, named Gudel came up with this theorem, and what he basically figured out is that you can either be consistent or you can be complete, but you can't be both. And okay. so um, I've sort of gone for, for completeness. You know, um, I want to embrace every aspect of, of who I am, and if that means that I'm inconsistent and I and I may come off a little confusing, then you know, so be it. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Let me ask you my final question. And you're far from over with in your career in music, um, but let me ask you this: When everybody peels back the pages of jazz and music history and they come across your name, what are you going to want the world to remember you by and what you've done? Let me put it this way: I think that that the that the thing that I do that I think is the most, maybe the most important, is that I'm taking an integral approach to the music. And so, in other words, by integral, what I mean is that there's a lot of different facets that all coexist, even though they're different, but they coexist. So, for example, um, music therapy is something that I've been studying. So, the healing aspect of music, that's one whole branch of it. And then the other thing is, in the music itself, I try to have some interesting content, you know, food for thought, food for the mind. And at the same time, I try not to let that overwhelm the emotional and the kind of intuitive side. So I try to balance the two different sides of the brain with my music. And maybe people didn't, not everyone totally got that in the beginning, but I think over time... Um, and, and especially with this new album that's coming out probably in September, I can't wait till this comes out because I think it's going to, more than any of my other work, I think it's going to really embody that, the spirit of the of the integration. And also going beyond the music and sort of approaching the music in a, in a holistic way um, in terms of its connection to the world and its connection to life. That's what I'm that's what I'm trying to do. Music is my applied philosophy. I understand the world through music. And hopefully through that I can contribute to that and maybe bring a deeper understanding of how through the arts we can have a, a greater understanding of our world. Like if if I can accomplish that that kind of goes beyond just being a performer or a composer or whatever. But if I could accomplish that, that would be my life's dream. That's beautiful. And I think you've done that. 
Stanley, it was an honor to speak with you. Thank you, for, thank you for opening up and spending a little time with me. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much. I really enjoyed talking with you today. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Stanley for his warmth, his music, and his great story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.